What's up, everybody? No Ride Around is back. And by back, I mean we finally have our cars in park. Right? Yeah, it's been a uh, it's been a fairly hectic, I want to say two weeks. It's more like, like eight, 10, 10 days, eight days, eight nine days. days. Yeah, I mean. It um, has, my wife told me this morning, she said, I was trying, I was relating some story, and I started to say something, and I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't told you. She's like, yeah, dude, I haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> no, it's, you know, um, it's funny how these things can become back to back. So, just to give you guys frame of reference, the, you know, the last we talked, we we were talking about, you know, what do you do after you've done a big thing? Well, obviously, you just do a lot more things. And you had, <laughs> and I say you because even though I was there, you know, the last three and a half years, if we go back at every race recap, there's a pretty heavy weight of race recaps that come from my experience, and that's only because I, by default, did a lot more events than you over the last three and a half years. Yeah, I mean, I think there one of our episodes, if you go back a couple of seasons, was uh, the first year that you had done uh, an event a month. Right, and now I've done that for... And that's just what you do now. Yeah, you, so... You, I see a nervous twitch in your eye when you don't have an event in a given month. I mean, I didn't have an event in June. I'm like, well, I guess I'll just go do that Salida Big Friggin' <laughs> which is by no... That's not like a, a I'll weekend just do 5K. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but pivoting here, the spotlight, dude... You were the racer this last week because you raced twice in seven days. Seven days. Yeah, I raced on Monday and then again on Sunday. How cool was that? It was cool. Um, you know, I didn't even. My mind has shifted so much about races that I've done, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it. I didn't think of it as two races in seven days for some reason until after the fact. It wasn't until after it was done, and I think somebody commented on my Strava. They were like, "Yeah, dude, two two races in seven days." I was like, "Yeah, that that's that's what happened." Yeah, uh, no, I you know I think you get this perspective shift when we've passed a long time, and you're sitting here now. It's what day that we get we on Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. Yeah, cool. And so you're just like that, right? We're in this tornado of days and this and that. But in the moment, you were super racer focused, like. Because of the way we worked together, like you were totally on task, knew exactly what to do, how to roll through it. And then just to pat your back for you, you even met adversity and still said, well, I'll still go and see what happens. And it turned out being okay and being better than okay. Like, dude, you had a 35-minute PR at Silver Rush. That I, um, I didn't – I had a goal time of – uh, six hours. My previous PR last year was 6:28, which was a 45-minute PR off of the year before, <laughs> um, or not the year before, but the previous time I had done it. Um, and uh, six was kind of a stretch goal, um, just because I didn't know, I guess. And uh, but I knew I could do better than last year's time, and so. The real goal was to improve on last year. The stretch goal was six hours. And then we ended up going sub six. Yeah. Uh, we did. We, f- who is we? Are you, we. Did well, you ride with other personalities? or I say we because 
that victory for me is also a victory for you as a coach. Yeah, I mean, fair enough, but I wasn't <laughs> out there pedaling that shit. Remember, I was running around in a cowboy hat. This is true. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I did. I'm uh, responsible for about 50 yards of your total race. Yeah. Where well, I was physically attached to you. I mean, it was a pretty important 50 yards. <laughs> <laughs> there was food. Um, um, dude, you did that, and that was so awesome. Yes, I walked away super proud. For you, and definitely proud for myself as well, but mostly proud for you. Like, you did that. How yeah. cool. No, that was awesome. And the adversity, of course, was um, I just I got like a 36-hour stomach bug mm-hmm. uh, starting on Friday. And Saturday, I didn't really eat the way a bike racer should eat before a race. Um, but, I, you know, I started typing up my uh, – you, you gave me some homework before I – before you and I talked as coach and athlete. And then also before you gave me my, uh, my new schedule for, for, uh, break Epic prep and I started it, but there's only so many goddamn hours in a day. (laughs) And you had to set up a new PS five yesterday. Uh, that was Monday. Uh, but, uh, what day day is today? Today's Wednesday. Okay. (laughs) Um, so when I woke up, I mean, one of the lines here is, um, you know, I woke up and I felt better but I knew I hadn't fueled correctly the day before. And uh, the way there was a lot of day two of LaRuda in getting to the start lines, like, dude, just line up. It's a race you've done before. And so what I said here, and you'll see it when I eventually send it to you is like, I knew that I felt worse and that I've done harder. And so that got me to the fin- or the start line and subsequently the finish line. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, there's nothing worse than like feeling physically ready and then just some random stomach bug where it's just like nothing stays in you. You can't take any more in and then you have to go do a hard thing on, on Sunday. So, but we got through it. I got through yeah, it. Yeah. You know, when you called to tell me about the stomach bug, I was, I was about 21 miles an hour downhill on my new single speed <laughs> approaching the Colorado trail. And I, and I simply was like, well, I'll still see you up here. Win, lose, or draw, we're rolling because worst case scenario, you just hang out with me. And best case scenario, you feel fine and we'll see what happens. Yeah. And I think you know at this point so often when I call you about something like that, it's just to reinforce what I already know. Totally. Yeah. It's not like I was like hoping that you were going to say, you know what, dude, maybe it's just not your weekend. I'll see you on Monday. And I knew that wasn't the conversation and that wasn't the conversation that I wanted to have, nor was it the goal of calling you. You'd be Uh, better off calling Xfinity and thinking you get a live person on the phone as they picked up. Right. Um, So, you know, I knew most likely it was probably just a 24 hour stomach bug or whatever it was. Um, And I had an obligation as it was to transport Colin and his stuff up there anyway. So it kind of get back, got back to that philosophy that we've talked about a couple of times this season, which is always go to the trailhead. Yeah. Um, you said to me, well, dude, you can't race without a number plate. So come get it. Yeah. And I did. And, and I really, did. you saw the shirt. This shirt was, it's the best <laughs> shirt they've had. And you said uh, to yourself, I can't, I can't wear, wear the shirt <laughs> unless I do the race. You cannot wear the shirt if you don't do the race. So your guts are, are, are revolting on you oh. and you're looking down at them and you're saying to them, but guys, it's a really good shirt. Really good shirt. It's, <laughs> it is. I've got a lot of Leadville t-shirts from the Silver Rush and the 100 and, uh, and it's the best shirt. Um, well, 
So we got there. We did the race. I mean, I, d- I was doing every mental gymnastic I could to like be excited to race. Um, but in the end, regardless of what Friday was like and Saturday was like, um, I got a pretty damn good night of sleep, actually, all things considered. And uh, we went and did the thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you, um, at this point, I don't ever doubt your ability to finish a thing. Right. Start. Like, that's not, you know, you're past that. And we've talked about that. Like, that's the, the guy who wants to do races and finishing it is the, is the reward. And you've moved far past that. But even still, to this day, I can pick up on the nuances of your, just your, the tenor of who you are, right? Like, I came into the shop last week to switch that super cow to a single speed. And you were wound up like freaking the inside of a baseball, right? And I could just look at you and tell my yeah. homies wound up. And then you told me why and it all made sense, right? So I can pick up on these things. So there's been races and events where I see you midway through and there's an energy and a vibe where I'm like, this ain't going to be good. <laughs> and then there's the opposite, which is what I saw on Sunday. You came through and I, you were so positive at your bottle swap you were positive about what you had just done. And when you pedaled away, you pedaled away not to like go to the next climb. You raced the flats to the next climb. Right. Like you were, everything about the way you operated there was the way that any racer who's in the race mm-hmm. to perform acts. And it was awesome. I was like, oh, he's good. I already knew the rest of the race. I'm like, oh, he's good. Yeah. The second half of the race is easier. Not energetically. Big, 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 air, big air quotes. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's. If you look at the raw... Yeah, the raw data. You do, I think... Uh, so outbound on Silver Rush uh, to the halfway point to the aid station or the turnaround point, I think is 4,200 feet of climbing, which effectively means you only have about 2,400 feet of climbing on the way back. Yeah, it's like 67% of the way out. So yeah. like you were good, but it was your energy. I'm like, oh, dude, he's money, you know? It was interesting because last year I... F- the first half of my, like I had a great race last year. I just had another great race this year. Mm-hmm. And I felt, I felt the same coming through. Like I remember very distinctly last year coming through to get bottles and say, man, I feel fucking awesome. And you're like, dude, you look awesome. Um, and I won't say that last year that day fell apart, but I, I started cramping on the last climb or the, the last single track climb before the long fire road. Um, I just like it, the second half of my race last year didn't go like the front half and the back half of, of Sunday was like everything executed perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last fire road, every mental trick to just, you know what? There's nothing to be gained from getting off and walking your bike, even though you want to get off and walk your bike on this stupid fire road. Um, just stay on the bike pedal. It's going to be over soon. Um, I didn't last year to hit my goal time. I had this really frenetic feeling, uh, to that last bit. And you can see it in my heart rate data. You can see it in my power data. Like I realized that goal time was super close and it ended up feeling very frenetic and I, I pulled it together this year. It all just felt, you know, we had this conversation last year about effortless. And for some reason it just like, I haven't thought about it in a year and then, this year again at Silver Rush, that like popped back into my head. It's and- really cool. You um, you said when you're talking about last year, and you're saying that you had this time is coming close to the time that has been historical. Harley, who has like set a goal time 
But as we both know, you'll use every allocated second within that goal time yeah. up until the <laughs> time. Sure. So then if, we, if you really step back another 10 feet and look at that, you're only going to be as fast as whatever you feel confident in making the goal time versus being just as fast as you fucking are. Mm-hmm. And today, or Sunday rather, you raced as fast as you are. Yeah. Right? Because you wouldn't have sat there and gone, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to take 35 minutes off. You even now say it's a stretch. It was a stretch. Yeah. Like if you came in at 6.02, you probably would have been bummed. Like, oh man, I almost made it, but damn, I was still so, 26 minutes faster than whatever, the, it, whatever was, yeah. it was, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's almost by removing those timestamps, you can truly like live up to where you, where maybe you can grow to be, you know, yeah. which is cool. So, but dude, you raced. It was yeah. awesome. No, it was, it was a great race. Um, we had cool stuff happen, dude. Ryan Bennett got the coin. He was the first guy up the hill. Did Not you? by a little bit either. Yeah, by a lot. Yeah, he was like two horses at Kentucky Derby lengths away from the next rider. Have you watched the the video? Of his face? No, not of his face. There's a, the Leadville drone video mm-hmm. from behind the hill where the racers are basically running away. Yeah. His run, like, I mean, job done. But, like, the way that it looks from the camera, it looks like the most painful way to run up a hill. Something oh, like yeah. dude. But I, at the same token, you do see him pull away from like this field of hundreds and hundreds of people. If it had been a like a sprint race, he would have won by many seconds. Oh dude, it was insane. And uh I told a sprint him, race without a bike, like right, on, right. Your, on your feet. <laughs> I told him um yesterday I said, hey, by the way, that's the best piece of footage of you that you have. Like I don't care if your parents got you getting baptized or like <laughs> walking across the stage valedictorian or whatever but that's the best video footage of your short young life so far right and he goes yeah you're right i mean it is it he was great. just so far off the front it was great so he got that rob kevwich wins single speed division which got him his coin to leadville which we'll probably have to tap onto that a little bit yep bennett got his coin he got a second coin through the drawing shane blasted his goal he rolls a sub five, which is just baller. So excited for him, right? Colin knocks off his first 50 miler ever. Hard which, one. Yeah. If you want to pick a 50 miler, maybe it's not Silver Rush as your first one. It's probably not your first one. You know, but he goes and does it and knocks that out. Like most people say, oh, I'll do Ridge on Rampage, right? He knocks off Silver Rush 50 and finishes the race with a functioning body. So that's awesome. Huge win. Yeah. Um, and his time was good. I know he had a different goal in mind, but. But we know it's hard to make goals when you haven't done a thing. You just so, don't know what you don't know. Yeah, you're throwing a dart at a, you're closing your eyes and throwing your dart at the board. So, but even still, his goal time and his real time percentage wise weren't that far apart. And his finish time, I think it was in the 630s, is a strong finish when you consider that I was coming back at one of the last downhills. In the 345 range, 330 range, and there were people at the bottom of that still climbing out. Oh, yeah. No. I mean, dude, the, the tail end of that race went on well past the awards into the rain. Like, Yeah. I was like, listen, guys, not for nothing. You all should start training because being out here as long as you are is miserable. Like, sure. anyone who gets caught in the rain at a race, and I don't mean to throw shade because you get caught at La Ruta in the rain. I mean. But it's like, 
if you get caught in the afternoon rainstorms, the only thing you should be thinking about in future years is how do I get faster so I'm not <laughs> caught in the afternoon rainstorms? Totally. Like it's just so much harder. Yeah, there's so much longer. So he did awesome. Super stoked to that. Um, another guy that was in our group, Kevin, did fantastic. So everyone had a great finish. But and this is bringing us to the point of the episode. Other than just celebrating you because you're freaking awesome this year, um, I won't speak about previous years. When we're in these towns. Breckenridge, Leadville, this last week. You know, when you're in these bike-centric towns, there's a bunch of different types of bike riders that you see. Like, we had us, the racers, but, you know, there's people that were in Breckenridge for 4th of July had no idea there was a bike race going on. Right, yeah. Which is, us to us, like, flabbergasted. How could you not know? And then you realize, like, well, there are thousands of people in town, and there's only, like, 700 of them riding the bike race. So... That leaves thousands of people that were like, oh, that's cool that there's bike race going on. So neat. And these people might be on like little rental beach cruisers from their hotel in Breckenridge, electric assist bikes, townie bikes, mountain bikes rented, mountain bikes they brought from Texas thinking they were capable of doing Breckenridge mountains. Like there's a huge assortment of people in these towns all celebrating their summer on a bicycle. Sure. And it's, it's so funny to think of at the 100,000 foot view, there's people who don't ride bikes, there's people who can ride bikes, and there's people who ride bikes. And the the don't ride and can ride populations are so much massively bigger than the group of people who are bike riders. Right. Regardless of what kind, you know, once right. you start chopping that down, it gets pretty crazy, but so Whatever the event is, if it's bike related, there's this 3% part of the world that knows that there's a cool bike thing going on. And then there's this 97% of that area that's just like, bike race? people do, people race these things. How far is this thing? Are you uh, in the, are you in the Tour de France? Uh, on a bicycle? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you, you know, you just have the, we saw, now that we're starting to talk about this, for Silver Rush, we stayed in Copper again. Uh, which is the default now for any Leadville race. And there was a group of people who were just cruising around copper on rented electric cruiser bikes. Those are people who can ride bikes. They're not bike riders. They're, they learned how to ride bikes when they were a kid. They're up in copper. Oh, they have these electric things. Let's go ride around copper on these electric things. Yeah. But 25 minutes away, is a marquee global globally known mountain bike event no idea and oh well uh, you know an interesting way to look at that though is they're still riding a bike adjacent to this big mountain bike group that's riding racing a bike both are in slotted in that tiny percentage of people that happen to be pedaling bikes mm-hmm. and we can get super nuanced as you said we can really slice this up which I think is kind of the plan. Well, I mean, that's what we're going to do today. <laughs> uh, I brought in this book. So I had to ask just real quick. Yeah. How old is it? Okay, yeah, great. That's a great question. Let's see when it's published because things change, as we know. Well, there you were... 2012. Kind of... Okay. So it's right. 10 years old. 10 years old. By the way, when you say 2012 is 10 years old... That's, that was five years ago. I don't want to hear it. I, you, can I shut, hate... you can shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when you age yourself is when you are. Yeah. So 2012 and, um, written by Mike Magnuson. And I think it was published through like bicycling magazine. Um, but it's called bike tribes. 
a field guide to North American cyclists. Because let's face it, there's a lot of different kinds of, even just go ride a bike path in Denver. Oh, dude, the bike path in Denver is a hell of a swath of, of people. It's you, a big, it's, it's have huge. you ever been to a gun show? No. You should, everybody should go to a gun show at some point because. I mean, I think that we should do everything we can to make this a non-political stance on this podcast. No, not for the guns, re- for the people watching. <laughs> oh, okay, fair <laughs> no, enough. No, <laughs> no. It's the biggest swath of people. It's a crazy, I mean, obviously there's some really like undesirable people, but it's just crazy. It's like going to the circus, kind of like riding the Cherry Creek bike path. Riding the Cherry Creek, if you can successfully ride the Cherry Creek bike path, it's because you owned a Nintendo and played Paperboy growing up. Like, <laughs> it's crazy on that path. Surviving that thing is, is is a deal. So there are a bunch of types of people that ride bikes, but I think even more importantly, within all of the groups of people that ride bikes, there actually happens to be a ton of animosity between certain groups that I've experienced. From roadies to mountain bikes to on mountain bike, like what kind of mountain bike, brands of mountain bikes, size of wheel of mountain bikes, construction of mountain bikes, where do you mountain bike, what trail you mountain bike. Like in everyone, not everyone, but there's a lot of, and I think it's a survival thing, but there's some judging that happens within these different groups of bike riders. <laughs> You're 100% correct. And it's survival on Cherry Creek. Like you have to, ju- like if you got a kid on a Strider and then you got a dude with like uh, arrow bars and a full TT kit, like you need to address those two variables very differently just to survive. Never mind the clueless guy with a chocolate lab and a 15 foot retractable leash on a stretch cruiser or, a or a longboard or, you know, like there's just, <laughs> you, you have everybody it's Frogger meets Paperboy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there was a with, meets halo. Actually, <laughs> actually without the reincarnation meets bum fight. Um, it's insane uh there was a a meme a lot of years ago uh that it was like how to be a mountain biker and one of them was like pick a wheel size and then be a dick about it and this is kind of that yeah yeah so what this book does is it goes through all of these groups we don't have time to get through all of them no it's a it's a it's pretty comprehensive there's a lot of pages in there and it looks like there might be a different group every two pages Yeah, I mean, out it, of a couple hundred pages? Yeah, it's a couple hundred. But if I gave you this book today, after we get done I'd recording, be done with it. It's fast. You're going to go get a coffee and smash this thing laughing yeah. <laughs> along the way. Sure. Um, but there's a purpose to going through these because there are character profiles that we'll go over that we all recognize. Like, oh yeah, I know that I know that person. Or, or I've been that person. And if there's one of them that strikes your fancy and you're like, oh, I've been that person, I think you, should, you know, we should... Jump on that a little bit. And know? I think because I've been riding bikes for so long, I've probably been a lot of them. Yeah. Well, not only riding bikes a long time, but like the book actually starts off at the bike shop and then it moves from there out into the wild. Yeah. And so like within the bike shop, it's got, you know, the guy that owns the bike shop, Big Ed's Cyclery. And you got like Big Ed, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. You got that guy. And that's like your Ed. Right. But there's, this could be a three hour episode. <clears throat> Only because I'm already thinking of people that aren't in there, but also so you're rewriting the book. There's kind of three, definitely two bike shop owner guys, and one is overweight and doesn't ride bikes but owns nice bikes, and the other rides bikes and owns nice bikes. Well, the one they talk about in here is Ed, and in this situation, 
Ed changes into a bike kit and grabs a vintage steel Colnago, his baby with down tube chip shifters and hand-built wheels, and he rolls it towards the door when he closes the shop. Those guys are all retired now? <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that's Ed. Like, yeah. Cool Ed. Yeah. But then you got Phil, and Phil hates everything about Saturday afternoons at what's here called Rock Cycles. The big box shop manager, Phil, arms crossed, shirt tucked in, irreversible corporate frown on the face, merchandise displayed in perfect anal retentive rows and brightest possible lights. I mean, that guy works at a place that I'm not going to say it, but it rhymes with Schmietmridge. <laughs> <laughs> so like there are two, you're right, there yeah. are two different, yeah. and you know what this book did? Yeah. It picked him out. So you don't need to rewrite it. Yeah. It already had him. <laughs> okay, three hour episode guy. <laughs> So there's all kinds of people that they have at this bike shop. Like, um, you know, and, and there are good people, there are bad people. Um, but we all, like, as his book says, like, all of us and all of these different tribes, we have to go to the shop. Mm-hmm. Like, because we bump into something that we need or that we can't do. Um, and so there's all these types of people that that can go into the shop. It lists them out. There's 20, 20 of them. Yeah. Right? Um, but it moves through and it talks about the, the wrench, right? Like, the wrench, the big box shop mechanic. The key to the job is the numbers in the computer. The perpetual, I don't want to be here frown. That guy sucks, right? But then you have the wrench that keeps us pedaling. The small shop mechanic, George. Joyful expression. Shop appears to be a mess, but in fact, the mechanic knows exactly where everything is. I'm going to grab a pen and scratch this out and write Mo. Except for the smile part. Well, no. Mo smiles. I've seen him smile and a cackling laugh anytime I show up with something that's an undesirable treat. Yeah. Food-wise. Or a nice little beverage. Yeah. Frothy with a pop top. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I, the shop that I grew up grew up in in New Orleans was a train wreck. But the service was always dialed. And I think Mo also personifies that. He keeps his area pretty clean now because I've made a pretty big deal about it. But to the untrained eye walking up into our service department compared to some beautiful bespoke display mechanics area uh-huh. it's just not that yeah and it's just this I, I i'm always at odds with myself of wanting it to be that because i like clean and tidy and cool looking but at the same time it's a functioning workshop so here's what i'm going to say to it like consumer facing right? yeah even though you know i get behind oz's curtain here yeah. quite a bit yeah um there's there's the shop you wheel the bike into Case in point, I was in Frisco, and my brand new bike was creaking a bit. I'm like, why is this thing creaking? This doesn't make any sense that it's creaking. And I take it into the shop, and it was a pretty clean shop, pretty well-oiled machine it looked like. And I explained what was going on, brand new bike. I'm like, I think maybe just like dry in the bottom bracket or the cranks or something. I, I, I don't know. I don't understand why it'd be creaking. And the guy goes, all right, and he pulls it aside and starts grabbing a ticket. Well, when do you need this back by? And I'm like, no, dude, like I'm riding right now. <laughs> right. And ultimately ended up, you know, he did take it apart and did the thing and, and I left and it still had the creek. You come into a shop with Mo and he will know the most random bass awkward solution to this thing that I've tried to YouTube and pink bike and Reddit <laughs> and all. And he's like, oh, you need to do the baby blah, 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 blah. In all of these bikes, as cool as they are when they're like put together and working well, as you know, man, they're like a hodgepodge. Like 
A bottom bracket to the crank interface is a hodgepodge of spacers and this, that's, and it's never as straightforward as anybody yeah. would like it to be. So if it's not straightforward, I'll argue you can't have a service shop that's that straightforward. Yeah. So I'll take crazy ass Mo with his disorganized look, being able to go, oh, bro, you need to do this, this, and that. And I'm like, oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah. I knew you would know because yeah. you're like 800 years old. <laughs> um, okay. So. We're going to roll through these guys, all right? If you've been this guy, say, I've been that guy. Yeah. And if you're listening to this episode and you go, oh, dude, I was that guy and I remember when, shoot us like a picture, a message, a story. I don't care. Pantomime it outside of the front of the shop with messenger pigeons on your shoulders. I don't care. Like, let's hear from you. But the first one's BMX racer. I was never a BMX racer. No. You know? Uh, I had BMX bikes, but was never a BMX racer, mainly because kind of like single parent household just trying to get food. I was just like, I was a... BMX kid. Yeah. That was just what we rode until I got a mountain bike and then that was over. Probably where this is. Next one. This is the overwhelming majority they call them. High school cyclists, old school bikes, uh, kickstand, jeans, because who goes for a bike ride without jeans on, no helmets, high school kids. Like you just ride it. Like this is how you get around, you know? So in high school, I we were obsessed with bike messengers. That was like the cool thing on a mountain bike. It was taking a mountain bike. And riding it super, especially in New Orleans, no trails. Our excitement came from splitting lanes, grabbing onto the backs of cars, you know, being kind of over the top aggressive teenagers with messenger bags on that had nothing in it because we weren't messengers. But then we became messengers. <laughs> That's I can picture exactly that. Um, ours was on BMX bikes. Same thing though, like because yeah. it's the freedom to ride, right? Mm-hmm. Then you get older. Here's the next one. And this is just the average riders, but the retiree cyclists, you know, helmets, sensible cycling outfit, upright position on the bike, large bags on the handlebars. Like I, I was reading recently about the idea of momentum and inertia, the two different, the two different words and what they mean. And like you get to a point in life, maybe you got an uncle who's like 85 and plays golf every single day. And you can go, man, that's cool. He plays golf every single day. But the truth is he had nothing else to do. He just he just golfs every yeah. day. Retiree cyclists, they'd be out there all day long. Cause what else are they gonna do? They're pretty beautiful. I mean, you see them putzing, they'll crush you on the Cherry Creek Trail because you call them out. And you know, remember, they can't hear because they're old. So uh, but they're out there. And now they have motors. And now they have motors, which is, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll get to that. The weekend riders. So you got the weekend mountain biker, right? He's got a mid-range full suspension bike, helmets, camelback bike jersey clipless pedals so he's like getting on it but it's a once a week guy right and yeah i think that's a lot of the trail conflict I, I agree and i also think in colorado specifically that's a pretty small percentage of the population yeah like I mean, we get people we sell budget-oriented hardtail and full suspension mountain bikes and those people will come in after their first year and one of the questions that we always ask people qualifying is like hey are you going to ride a lot or is this going to be every now and again thing? And then they come back a year later like, I thought I was just going to ride once a week. Man, I ride this thing four days a week. Yeah, I we Abby and I had this conversation just uh, – actually, just a couple of days ago. We were talking about some of the newer riders on our team and uh, talking about maybe some like self-imposed limits. Like, oh, I'm only going to be this fast. I'm and what I said was, well, they have to do more is really what it boils down to. Like, I think in Colorado, if you're going to get into mountain biking – you better be committed to riding three times a week. Mm -hmm. 
If you can't do, as a matter of fact, that goes across the board for all Colorado hobbies. Like you want to get into kayaking, rock climbing, high alpine stuff, fort, like what, like whatever you want to get into here. The opportunity risk matrix is pretty wild with Colorado sports. You well, better do that three times a week. And the terrain here, there's no no terrain here that is easy enough that doing it once a week is going to make you good enough to feel proficient. So I wanted to buy a bike. I came into a shop. It's May. Summer's getting underway. I buy a bike. Well, if you're going to do it once a week, that means you're going to ride your bike like 12, 13 times this year. Uh-huh. And then next year, get on the bike and be like, oh, yeah, man, I did this all last year. And that's if you ride through the winter. No, you did it 13 times for the summer season, the fall or whatever. You did 13 times till 13 weekends. And you're, I promise you, you're going to get very minimal return on that investment of time. Like, you're never going to get in front of the fitness it takes to be no. proficient and confident. Yeah. You got to do it three times a week. So moving on, um, the next person is the weight loss cyclist, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, it's I, a, I would do it if I needed to lose weight as like a health thing, I would do bike riding long before I decided to be a runner. It talks about, um, it gives, you know, it gives the fictional people in this book, which is pretty fun. And, you know, and it says, uh, you know, Charlotte started going to spinning class six days a week, sometimes seven, sometimes twice a day. Then she cut out cheese of her diet. Uh, the rest of the fatty food, fast food trash got cut out, started keeping a food journal and then loved spinning. So by extension, thought she liked cycling and gets into cycling. Like that's a really cool progression. Yeah. You know, and, and you see that and watch that and. There's a great amount. I've never gotten into cycling for weight loss because I've just kind of always been in front of the curve on that one, which has been fortunate. But I have family that have. Uh, I just bought a helmet from you and mailed it to one of my aunts who's like gotten into riding bikes and she was riding around without a helmet. And I said, you are not proficient enough to ride without a helmet on. <laughs> you need a helmet. I don't ride without a helmet on. <laughs> so I get you one. But the weight loss cyclist, that's awesome. And, and I wish more people did that. So And it's so funny because that person can very easily progress to – somebody who transitions from saying they start to want to experience it outside. And now they've got the fitness and the body composition where they can go and, and ride a mountain bike or a road bike outside and not hate it and actually feel like they're doing something. Well, and then by extension, feel an inclusion into like this big group of people that here in Colorado, you do see all the time. Um, I think that there's a less known story within our team of arguably the fastest guy on our team, Brian, got into bike riding not because he was like, oh, I'm going to get into bike riding. He got into bike riding because of a terrible injury that he sustained and he could no longer play hockey and he used a bike as a recovery tool. Literally the first time he rode a bike consistently was as part of PT and rehab from a terrible uh, injury to his leg. So he's now not only one of the fastest on our team, one of the fastest in the state, and arguably going to be one of, is one of the fastest in the country just because he started riding it as a means to get better, which is what like the weight loss cyclist does too. So, And they turn into the next person. This talks about Brett, the slow triathlete, you know? And this is funny because they got like three tiers of triathletes in here, which now, I know I have we to, don't, you know. I don't know if triathletes are cyclists. Okay. Um, I'm going to make a public statement. This is a PSA for everyone who listens, both because you're on our team and you're our friends. Yes, I agree with you guys. Harley has, in fact, lost the right to name people cyclists or not cyclists on the grounds that he now owns an e-bike, an e-mountain bike. If you're going to have flexible thought, no. If you're going to have flexible thought, because 
three years ago when we talked about e-bikes, we were singing different tunes. And then you started singing a slightly modified tune because you're like, I have to sell them. And now you have a cheese dick smile when you get to ride your mountain bike, e-mountain bike for a recovery one. So I think you've lost the right to badge or debadge cyclists. I disagree because at the end of the day, all of my outdoor exploits are on two wheels. I don't think, hey, that was a great bike ride. I should probably go for a run. Yeah, no, listen, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not arguing with, with where you stand on this. I'm going to sit up here on top of this mountain of judgment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to wear your, my crown. <laughs> your, your mountain of judgment looks insanely similar to a pile of dog shit to me <laughs> from this point of view. Because I think you've lost the right. I'm not arguing with you because if you hand me an e-mountain bike, I'm saying it right now, you hand me one, I'm going to ride it. I'm going to ride it on a trail on my recovery day. There, I said it. I mentioned this to somebody just a couple of days ago and they they chopped my head off because of what I've said on this podcast years past. And I said to them, a great growth of man is the ability to have flexibility and thought. Yeah. And that's where I'm at. When presented with new information. <laughs> if you handed me an e-mountain bike, I'm going to ride the piss out of it. Yeah, I, I, I think if you have rules about it, I don't. I only use it as a recovery tool or as a second bike ride in a day after I've done a training day. Yeah, look, look, we can justify it because we're powerful in that category. <laughs> I'm just saying that it talks about okay. these, these next three riders: a slow triathlete, the medium pace triathlete, like the beginner. Yeah. Um, they're all confused with the guy, then the fast triathlete. And then the guy who thinks he's pro, uh, the guru triathlete, right. Or the guy who's got everything. Um, the Ironman logo, he's got it tattooed several places on his body. If you'd like to see them, just ask, <laughs> right. Don't worry. He'll show you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He'll, he'll let you know. Um, but we'll move past those guys. Cause this isn't a tri- triathlete podcast. Um, you've got the century rider, but this one is labeled as the strong century rider. And these are the guys that go to like um, Elephant Rock or the Triple, well, maybe not the Triple Bypass, so, like Denver Century, but they treat it like a race. Like they get done and they upload their Strava Man. Right. Was I fastest today? Well, and the, so so people have, people outside of, of Colorado have a point of context. The most universal would be the MS-150 rider. They have MS-150 rides all over the country. Yeah. And I, back in living in Louisiana, that was really the only event that I knew a lot about. And I thought it was a race. I didn't know any better when I was a kid. I just thought it was a race because all these idiots would come in and be like, Oh, I'm racing the MS 150. I'm like many years later, I realized, no, you raced MS 150. 300 other people were raising money. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you did wit. Yeah, yeah. And we have, we have these rides here, uh, triple bypass being one of them. I mean, there's, there's a ton. Yeah. I remember my first Denver Century was also my only Denver Century uh-huh. um, because no one wants to be riding miles 94 through 99 in Commerce City. No. So I did the Denver Century ride, and uh, we did it with uh, another guy who, who had ridden road bikes a lot. And, and I didn't have a road bike at the time. I had only mountain bikes. And same with Abby. And I go, Abby, we should do the Denver Century with him. He wants us to. I think it'd be a lot of fun. She goes, cool, let's do it. Well, I went and I rented us two road bikes. And... That was the first time Abby's ever ridden a road bike. Okay. Now, we had single-speed commuters and stuff like that. We did a lookout on single-speed. Yeah. Like, just because the first time she ever rode a road bike was the Denver Century ride. And um, 
that was the first time I had done a century. Man, we had so much fun, like until towards the end when you're just undercarriage. Like if you don't, you do need to kind of train for a century, just the undercarriage alone. You got to be used to sitting on a bike seat. <laughs> yeah. Like you, like in, unlike mountain biking on a road bike, you're pretty much just sitting the whole time. But, uh, they move into what I think should be the next, the good time century rider. Like if you're going to go do one of these things to raise money or like, like I, I've gone and done a few of these now and I'll stop at the aid stations. You enjoy the food, you hang out, you chat with people. Cause at the end of the day, you're going to ride the hundred miles. You're going to ride the hundred miles. Enjoy the thing. Well, and that you're not person racing. kind of ties into like a ragbri rider because ragbri is a super long event, but it's just a rolling daily party. You ride a ton but there's aid stations, there's parties, there's trucks with music. And I think the Good Time Century Rider and the Ragbri Rider are the same person, just the Ragbri Rider does more. This next chapter is the Ragbri. Yeah. And it's pretty funny. It says, this is day five of Ragbri, the famous seven-day mass bike tour from west to east across Iowa, which is where I'm from. And I, by the way, I've never done Ragbri um, because we have cooler events in Colorado. Uh, it says, and while Dave is... Th- only one rider among the 10,000 or so riders participating in this tour. He is not the only naked cyclist enjoying a skinny dip in this wonderful bubbling stream exactly. in Iowa farm exactly. country. Like it is mayhem. And I think that's why I haven't done it because I don't like, I don't let loose like that. It's a, it's a party more than it. it's a party yeah. that happens to have a bike ride. I'm afraid if, if I agreed to doing rag bride, which, you know, middle of the summer in Iowa is not the most enjoyable place to be temperature wise. No, but if I did it, I fear I would be the racer guy. Like I'd be off the front being like, I got here fastest and everyone would be like, nobody cares. You're the only one that gives a shit. Like at Leadville events, at least there's a lot of people that do it just for fun also. And like they finish and they have slamming beers, but they can respect the guy who won. Yeah. Ragbri, they don't, they, they will shun you. They give no fucks. Yeah. Zero given. So that's Ragbri is the next guy. Um, and then it gets into more of these. Like, there's thousands of people, there's thousands of people that do these types of events. That, that you know, charity rides, right? The cha- charity century rider, the uh, all these different opportunities there are to still go ride all day long, and people train for that reason. It's cool because it gives them purpose, and then it's kind of like no pressure of the event, you know? Yeah, might be similar to the next event I have coming up. <laughs> um, then the book starts to get into pro riders. Right, the pro female rider, which they make a real good point in here, which has gotten better in the last few years, but they make a point in here of showing the pro male rider, and he's got you know like backup bikes and a team car and like all, and then it shows the female pro rider, and there's a sketch in here of her with her badass bike, but it's in her office at her job that she has to have because as a female pro, she's not able to have the same life as the male pro, but. They're, they're bridging that gap, fortunately. Yeah, I, I think that dates this book a lot because, yeah. you know, there, there has not been uh, a level playing field for women to pursue a professional. It's just, it, it's evidenced even in everybody is so excited by the quote-unquote femme tour that's going on right now alongside the Tour de France. Um, I know that if you're a professional athlete, I... I have a gut feeling that the women racing in the FIM tour, uh, one would probably prefer to just be racing the tour de France and not have it be labeled as something else. Um, but they would probably be just as happy doing all three weeks, but it's this weird truncated thing. So even now, 10 years later, it's just not the same for female athletes as it is for male athletes. It's better. 
Yeah, it's better. And, you know, a lot of that is it comes to like the economics of it. And we, we could spend a whole episode talking about that. What's cool is that our events that we go to, you're now seeing equal payouts, yep. podium payouts, which is pretty impressive because truth be told, if the purse is a $20,000 purse split equally between male and female, that $10,000 is getting distributed to the top five male pros. That's top five male pros out of probably a field of 100 and something. And that same 10 grand being distributed to top five females. And it might be a field of like smaller 28. Yeah, whatever the number is. So, it's a smaller field. But they're ignoring that reality and saying we're still giving equal payouts. Yep. So we're seeing that in our events, which which is cool. Um, I wish I was a lot faster female writer. I'd probably make more money. <laughs> but <laughs> here last, we are. Here we are. To, and I'm not going to call myself this one, but this is the category three jackass. <laughs> you ain't pro, but you spend money like you are. <laughs> no, that's not me. But they show him category three jackass Dennis sitting on top tubes, ultra dorky way to look cool, looking around to see if anybody's staring at him. And I watched this as I progressed, not with mountain bike, but in cyclocross. You start at cat five, yeah, then you go four, and you go three, and then you're open. And there are like these huge shifts of like intensity and uh, you know pretentiousness, even in cyclocross. At each of those levels. Like, I remember at five, everyone's like, yuckety, yuck, yuck, having fun. Like, whoa, dude, you saved it. And then at fours, like, people start warming up, right? And then at threes, like, no one talks to each other. And it's like game face, you know? Does it, I feel like it goes, I think there's like an inflection point at three where the more elite the racers to a certain point, there's more camaraderie. It, it, it like, the, the pendulum starts to swing yeah. back the other direction. Yeah. Like we, so we've got a racer right now who has leveled up. He's now racing cat one and he's racing cat one, but he's in the very back of the cat one pack. And that's a tough spot to be because he's super fast. Like he's blowing numbers out of the water, but then you go to these fields and you race and you forget like these cat one mountain bike racers were probably had a career at some point as like a road or semi-pro road or collegiate road racer. Or have just been doing it or doing forever. It like, they have a huge pedigree. And so then you got this guy who goes, man, I'm super fast. I'm killing everybody in all these other categories. I've won a bunch of races. I'm now a cat one and I'm in the back of the pack. And you're right. Once you move to mid and then the top 10 of that category, it does swing back and you know everybody and you're cool again. Yeah. But there is that like moment where there's like, a, there's an inflection point where totally. everybody's just a little too cool for school. Yeah, totally. Um, they talk about this guy, the master's sandbagger. I love this dude. Cause you're going to, the last, the last point on him is hilarious. He's got one, a personal team tent used only for bike races Two Euro style van used only for bike races. Three fancy road bike used only for bike races Four. Spare fancy road bike, used only for bike races. (laughs) Five, tools for all possible repairs. And six, old man ass. Old man ass. So there's uh, there's definitely going to be some groups in here that aren't covered. Um, And they're not widely known, but there is, in that group, there is what we call the saggy white sock crew. Um. And they're all of the same age and demographic. They all wear a very particular brand of Italian bike shoes. And they all wear them with saggy white Walmart crew socks. So gross. (laughs) 
watch next time you see somebody wearing fancy Italian mountain bike or road bike shoes. They definitely have Lycra that's baggy on them and saggy white socks. You know, dial it together. You They're, were so good until... You spent $600 on shoes and you can't afford some socks. So it gets into the mountain bike guys, which is kind of like where we enjoy to spend our time. They got You got the fast mountain bike racer. You've got the mountain bike racer web media guy. So that kind of shows how old this book is. But yeah. basically, like basically the, an, the an, Instagram an, guy. Yeah. Right? Dogs off leash. This is what mountain bike racing is all about. Kids playing Frisbee. Like, you know. Is the Enduro bro in there? I think this is pre-Enduro. This is maybe pre- You got the happy mountain bike racer couple. They got their own team flag that they custom made, you know. Cutesy couple. We know who they are. I'm going to tear his legs off this year. (laughs) Um, It gets into cyclocross. We covered that a little bit. The cyclocross racers. It gets into the the, uh, Rondonet guy, the rando guy, who, um, you know, 60s. Out there enjoying it. Those are just guys that ride all day, every day for the pure enjoyment of it. Happy wanderers, the tourist cyclists. Stuff spread out on the table, signifying home is anywhere where you can make it feel like home. You could easily translate those into gravel riders now. Yeah, steel bike with panniers and handlebar pack and fenders. So you got that guy. And then it gets to this last one, this last category, which is a little different than those two previous. It talks about the touring cyclist. And the next sentence is really neat. It says, purity is what purity does. And this is what I wanted to get to. Because outside of commuters and single speeders and, uh, uh, you know, fixie riders and all these other fun categories that the bike continues going into, it stops with this guy, the tourist. And we were in Leadville. We were in Breckenridge. And currently right now, the Great Divide race is going on. Mm-hmm. Racing the Continental Divide. But that's the thing that people do all year long. Um, and when you're in these mountain towns, especially those on the continental divide that are part of that route, you see these people roll through a town with like their bike is just caked dirty. They've got bags all over the place, but they're put together enough that you know that they aren't just out like, you know, um, bumbling their way through it. You know, they're not like the Beverly Hillbillies, but they're out there just because they want to see a thing, the U S the world, the whatever. And they want to do it on a bike in all of us, like me, fast mountain bike racer guy trying to win to the Texas e-bike commuter bike. Cause the hotel in Breckenridge had it just tooling around the bike path. We all stop what we're doing. And we like look at with reverence at that person. Like it stops a town, man. I watched it happen in Leadville. I watched it happen in Breck. I watched it happen in, you know, in all these towns I spend my time in. When you get somebody rolling through with a setup like that, you go, well, wh- where did they come from? Where where are they going? Yeah, what's their it's, how, how did what's they get, the story? Yeah, like how are you able to do that? Like you don't have to work. Like what's your job? Like we're so mystified sure. by how they're able to do it in the face of like all of the you know the family from Texas has a thirty foot trailer hooked up to a <laughs> totally. Ford F three fifty Super yeah. Duty just to come up with, like but how did you do that? And they go well, I just got all the stuff I needed or thought I needed. Figured I get the rest of it along the way, and I just started pedaling. Yeah. And for us, we always see them. I'm They have to ride through Denver to get to those places, but they blend into Denver, right? They, they don't stick out in Denver. It isn't until you get to a town that sits at 10,000 feet in a mountain range and you see them because they stick out like a sore thumb that you think to yourself, holy shit, 
that guy made it from a city that I drove from on a bike. Yeah. Guy or girl, whatever. Sorry. And I've got four bags and two repair stands. I got my Normatex. <laughs> I got a foam roller. I have my oat milk for my coffee. <laughs> and they're like, I got six bags and 300 bucks. Dude. And like, we've had this really weird, like bike packing conversation since we've started this, this whole podcast. Um, and I want to get into that. I just, when you see this person roll out of the woods, guy, girl, young, old, fit, not fit. When you see him roll out of the woods, you just turn your head and you go, man. And I think for me, the reason I do that is because even though I've built this lifestyle, especially this year, I've built this lifestyle that really revolves around biking, adventuring. You don't live in Denver. I, I, I have an address. <laughs> so I've, I've done this and, and I'm really proud about the way I built my life. And even I, I turn and I look and I'm like, man, how, how did you get all that to align? Like, how did you get that? Call it freedom, confidence, ability, whatever. Like, dude, you did it. And I think it's it's cool because I look at that and I say, man, anything's possible. Sure. And that person is showing it. And so when the book culminated with with that option, as all of these bike tribes, this guy, Mac, Mike Magnuson, says, man, the touring cyclist, that's the guy. I think he's right. It, it is, you know... I think anybody from the rando riding a a commuter bike on the Cherry Creek bike path to a top level elite athlete, each one of those and every segment along the way, they're going to sit there and say, no, I'm the pure cyclist because it's the thing that they do and they're passionate about it. Um, But I think if each one of us took the the step back to go just have a real honest outside looking in perspective, the person who's just doing it for the pure joy of doing it is probably the pure cyclist. Yeah. When somebody goes, why are you riding that bike? I'm training for this. I'm doing this race. Yeah. And, they did, and they say, because that's the answer. And there's such a, yeah, because exactly. And you win. Like they win. Yeah. Just I'm doing it. Cause that's what I do. Yeah. And to be clear, it's not that we don't find joy in training. It's just, it's, it's a no strings attached love affair with, exactly. the, with the idea of riding a bicycle. Great way to put it. And and how much cooler could it be than that? And so that's the challenge, right? That's that's kind of the, the next challenge is as we I'm gonna unveil to you when we stop the recording, I'm gonna unveil to you what your training block is for the next two weeks, because then we're into like getting prepared. Yep. You're gonna be on it, you're gonna be on it, you're gonna be on it. But when the season's over. We're both going to look at it and we're going to answer where we're going to ride just because. I already have, but it's already booked. Good. Until then. Yeah. Thanks for listening to No Ride Around, guys. Thanks for thanks for checking us out, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>